all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We are taking your calls this morning during the hour concerning any kind of issues that you might have about your health or the health of somebody in your family, or maybe it's a friend. Any kind of topic would be appropriate that's healthcare related, and that includes things like new medications that your physician might have ordered for you, or maybe it's a new symptom that you have that you haven't quite put a finger on. Could be anything from vaccines to, uh, to preventive medicine type issues, anything that is concerning you we'd invite you to call this morning. You can reach us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. If you're not able to call, you can always send us an email. Send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. And also check out our website, mpbonline.org, where we have previously uh, aired programs recorded there for you to go back. You know, we realized that a lot of times you'll come in uh, and on the back end of a conversation that we're having or maybe miss something in the program due to work issues or other issues that sort of interrupt that time. You're always welcome to go to mpbonline.org and search for Southern Remedy, uh, and you can check us uh, check out our previously recorded programs. I uh, hope everybody's having a great day today. I hope everybody has an opportunity to get outside. I know most of Mississippi, if not all of it, and the surrounding region, is enjoying some great weather right now, great fall weather that we get, lots of sunshine. Uh, can't uh, emphasize how much we have enjoyed that, uh, particularly after last week's stormy weather with a hurricane coming through and tropical storm-like conditions and wind damage. I uh, hope everybody is enjoying that, though, today. Get out and get out, uh, get some exercise. This is a good time for a change. If you're looking to improve your health, getting out and doing something as simple as walking outside, is something that you can do to improve your health. I know I was able to get in a run last night uh, when I got home, uh, and uh, a lot of people out and about uh, uh, outside enjoying the weather then. So do that. Uh, That's one step in the right direction for your health. I would encourage people to call in early. We usually have a little bit more time to get to your calls if you call in on the first part of the hour. We sometimes have to, unfortunately, rush the last 10 or 15 minutes or so to get everybody in, want to give everybody enough time to uh, ask their questions. But we do have one caller on the line. We'd like to go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd like your opinion about something. Um, several years ago, there was a like a mini epidemic of uh, elders coming down with whooping cough, and uh, it was recommended back then that uh, you go to the health department and get ad- adults having their immunizations and have a little immunization book and everything and keep up with your adult immunizations, is that still recommended? Because I'm wondering if people should still be keeping up with their pertussis and tetanus shots and whatever else kids are immunized for. 
I mean, should adults yeah. keep up their immunizations? Yeah, that's a great topic. You know, we tend to think of uh, immunizations as only for kids because we do a lot of them in children to help prevent some things. In fact, I was just talking with one of my adult patients um, yesterday in clinic, and um, he was uh, on the back side of the door of the exam room and had a, a pictorial and a list of all the different uh, things that we vaccinate mostly kids for. Um, and he said, you know, I don't even I don't even know what some of these are. And uh, it's true. The reason is we've been so successful with our immunizations uh, in the last century um, that we have virtually eliminated a lot of these conditions. However, it is important to continue that those vaccination schedules when you're an adult for several reasons. And one is uh, from time to time we do have uh, you know, uh, things that we used to vaccinate for uh, that sort of uh, come back in the population. Some diseases, unfortunately, even with really good vaccination rates, we don't totally eliminate. It would be nice if we could do that, but because of their patterns of transmissal, how long they could be in the environment, other parts of the world and travel that we have right now, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you could be re-exposed to something. And then the other part of that is as you get older, there are some conditions that you're vaccinated for or that you've come into contact with when you were younger that you lose immunity to. And uh, so you mentioned uh, whooping cough or pertussis is one of those. And that's one that usually presents with a just a horrendous cough that won't stop. Um, it causes a lot of problems in the elderly, uh, and, but even more problems in young uh, babies and, uh, and, and young children. Uh, just because of their airways, airways being a little bit different. And it's now recommended that you have a booster, all that sort of uh, wrapped into one. So if you get a tetanus shot every 10 years, um, that um, also includes, uh, can include a, a pertussis uh, vaccination um, that would uh, sort of boost your immunity, immunity to that as well. So it is recommended that you get that about every 10 years. And if you have a grandchild or a child in the family that's coming, um, you know, in the next six months or so, they are recommending that everybody that would come into contact with that baby just because they are not vaccinated. Uh, we're trying to protect them and everybody around them that you get a, a pertussis uh, a booster as part of that tetanus uh, Tdap, uh, uh, DTAP uh, vaccination. And a lot of these are together. So you'll see that they, you know, sort of combine together. Uh, but that's one of them. You know, pneumococcal vaccinations are very important. Um, we had two at one point. Now we're back down to one. We may get to that a little later with the, with the email question. Uh, and then, of course, influenza and things that change from year to year so that our body's not able to totally recognize that. That's another one that you would want to get. Uh, shingles is another one uh, for older individuals. And again, you're exposed to uh, most people, uh, you know, we're getting to the point where we, we're having some individuals who were vaccinated and now they're getting older uh, and shouldn't have as much shingles. But uh, if you had chickenpox as a child, you are at a potential risk for developing shingles later in life because of the virus that causes that sort of hangs out in your uh, in your nerve cells. So that's just a lot of them. The best way to do this is to check with your physician. Um, we don't, in this state, we don't have a lot of good ways to track that in adults. We do have a vaccination database for kids, 
that it's pretty easy to get that. In fact, they just went online, so you can actually ask for that online with the Mississippi State Department of Health. Uh, if you go to their website, you'll see some links on there about how to access that. Um, so there's not a very good way, but if you have insurance, actually go into your pharmacy and say, hey, can you pull up my vaccination record? And if you've had your vaccinations within the state in some way or another, they can actually pull that up. And a lot of pharmacies are really uh, good at keeping, uh, you know, vaccinations there. It's just fine. I tell my patients all the time, look, I don't care where you get your vaccination just so that you get it to protect you. So, Sue, I hope that answers your question. It is important to keep up with those and to make sure uh, that you're seeing your physician about that. One other thing is, you know, just because it's recommended one way for the entire population doesn't mean that you in particular, because of certain medical conditions like COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or other lung diseases, you may need vaccinations that are not included in that, or that you may need those vaccinations a little bit earlier. So everybody's a little bit different in their risk. Well, thank you very much. All right, Sue, you take care, and uh, thank you for your call. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, speaking of vaccinations, we did have an email that asked a question about this. So the uh, the call the listener says, I'm 66 and I'm having, I've, I've been taking the pneumonia vaccine also for at least a couple of years. I have finally found where I can get the vaccine for this year, but only the regular, not the pneumococcal. If I understand correctly, is this regular one um, sufficient or do you advise I keep looking? I live in Jackson County. Um, so uh, there may be a little bit of confusion with what is required. Again, pneumococcal vaccine is against a bacteria or a, a number of bacteria in the pneumococcal family that um, are serotypes, as they're called, that cause pneumonia. Um, particularly in older individuals and younger individuals. So that is recommended for the general population at age 65. Prior to, a couple, prior to a couple of years ago, we did have two different vaccinations for this. We had a 13 valent and then we had a 23 valent. And uh, the 13 valent was recommended to get that first and then six to 12 months later get the 23 valent. That recommendation has changed for the general population so that you don't have to get that 13. It is recommended now that the 23-valent, the old pneumococcal vaccine is what you need. Now that's different. Uh, you know, most, most people think of this as the pneumonia vaccine, but it really is against pneumococcus. So it doesn't prevent against every pneumonia. It just decreases your risk for pneumococcal bacteria. And, uh, you don't have to get that one every year. So after 65, you should be good if you've received it already. There may be some, again, some other populations, like maybe you have uh, a lung disease, maybe you're a smoker, maybe you have asthma that your physician may say you're at a higher risk and that we think that you may benefit from getting the 13 uh, pneumococcal vaccine as well. But uh, as far as year to year, the only thing that I can think that you may be a little bit confused about is a uh, flu vaccine. So flu does need to be given uh, on a yearly basis to help prevent against uh, influenza, which can lead to pneumonia in some individuals. So, um, and again, 
checking with your physician about that is probably the best way to keep up with that or your pharmacist. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. answering your questions or calls about any kind of health issues that you might have. The number to call this morning is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, we mentioned the beautiful fall weather, and with it comes uh, lots of usual routines for people in the fall. I know schools have gotten into full swing. I know a lot of uh, schools have switched over after the first nine weeks to, uh, you know, some options about all of the kids being there. And uh, certainly hats off to all the teachers who were going through a lot of those changes. Um, it, it has been incredible the amount of work that they have done to try to accommodate these. And I can tell you in, in healthcare education, particularly graduate medical education, has been very challenging along the way. And I uh, can't say enough about all the people out there that have work to try to make this an easier transition to do things a lot differently than we ever had planned or imagined to do them to try to ensure that uh, education continues. So uh, uh, I would encourage all of us to uh, try to look for ways to support those individuals in doing their jobs. And uh, certainly it has been uh, very challenging. My wife's a nurse and uh, she has been doing a lot of COVID testing at a university uh, locally, and uh, it's been uh, really challenging to to deal with all the hassles uh, that go along with that. So hats off to everybody else who out there. We're all a part of this team to try to do things. We don't uh, may not be doing everything the same, but each one of us has a uh, individual role to play in defeating this. A lot of analogies, I think, to uh, past uh, wars. I've talked to uh, several people who were. Um, you know, don't have a whole lot of them left, but in, in World War II or had ex- previous experience with that. It's amazing to me to talk to those individuals about the collective uh, team mentality that was required, not just if you were fighting overseas, but here too to support that effort. So we are re- waging a war on this, and the way to win is to come together in many different ways. Um, there have been some questions lately about, you may have seen in the news recently about uh, um, the halting of some of either the vaccine trials or some of the other trials. And that's a great question to ask. Some of my patients have brought this up. Uh, the most recent one, Eli Lilly, uh, it's a, a pharmaceutical company. And um, it is, uh, you know, they're, they're, they just uh, uh, try to develop a monoclonal antibody. This is similar to what the, uh, the president uh, received. These are antibodies made against 
the virus that um, that uh, are produced in uh, lots of different uh, animal models. Uh, I believe the ones he received were, were murine or, or mouse related. So there was a halt in that because of some safety concerns. This is not outside the ordinary of normal testing. Um, so, um, so uh, this is uh, this is you know not not something to be uh, not anticipated. Basically, in all of these drug trials, you have uh, or or even vaccine trials, there's something called a data data safety monitoring board. Now, the data safety monitoring board is there to protect the individuals who are participating in the trial, and their one of their main jobs is to look at any kind of potential side effect or adverse effect that they would be having uh, from those uh, vaccines or medications. And if it's significant enough, they basically halt the trial. And there's a very low threshold for this because it's something new that we're trying on individuals. So they halt the trial to uh, uh, investigate further if the uh, side effects or the negative uh, consequences are directly related to the therapy that they're instituting. So it's not unusual to see that. They may also halt it if they reach a point where, um, where there's very, very positive benefit without a doubt and, and a low risk of side effects. So uh, it's an oversight type function. It tends to be a little bit separate from the, the company, uh, you know, so that there's some objectivity to that. So it's not something to be unanticipated. A lot of people may get discouraged with that, but this is the way to do good research on what works and what doesn't work, whether it's a vaccine or a medication. Uh, it's painstaking. It takes a long time to go through that, but that's the way you do good research to try to protect people and try to make sure that what you're um, developing is going to be efficacious for them. So. Uh, couple of vaccine trials have been halted for that, one still halted, and then the Eli Lilly's antibody treatment trial is on pause for that. So that's important. You know, a lot of people will say, well, it worked on the president. Why can't we give it to everybody? Uh, it may work in one individual, but if it works in 20% of the individuals, but 80% have a, a very bad outcome, um, that's something, that's the information we don't know. And it's a big risk to take uh, and, you know, the first tenet of good medicine is do no harm. And uh, that's one of the ways we try to prevent that. It, uh, it is frustrating sometimes that it takes months, if not years, to develop these therapies. But that's the way you, uh, you do it to try to protect people. Hey, Dr. Jimmy, could I jump in with a kind of a follow-up question? Sure. Go ahead, Kevin. Um, I read that the, the, the one person that got sick that was in the trial and they said they didn't know for sure whether he actually got the vaccine or not because as part of the trial they always do the placebo. If he was in the placebo group, it would just be maybe some sort of odd coincidence that he caught something while in the, the, the study? Yeah, exactly. So, so these, these trials are blinded so that you won't have a bias toward one group or the other. So Usually what they'll do is they'll, uh, even in vaccine trials, it may be an injection of saline solution, solution which is this sort of salt, salt water that's comparable to what's in our bodies. Um, and uh, what you're trying to do is to try to totally give the same situations in a large enough population so that you can see the difference. Uh, but you can. I mean, things happen. Uh, individuals who are in these trials, they come into contact with other viruses. They develop chronic illnesses like autoimmune diseases from other things. 
that have nothing to do with the trial. Uh, so whether they receive the drug or medication or vaccine, um, sometimes that the, the determining factor is, did it directly cause that? So which is why there is a, if you've ever been involved in this, you know that there's a lot of follow-up and a lot of questionnaires that say uh, you have to take your temperature every day for two weeks after um, after receiving the, the vaccination. You have to have some reporting on how you feel. They have a checklist of symptoms that you have to go through. So it's very exhaustive in, in the, the number of things that they pick up on. And just think about it, in the last two weeks, how many of us had a headache or felt tired? Um, so if you throw on top of that a vaccine or a, a medication trial, you may have some of that in there. Now, if you have a person that truly gets sick and it's, it's sort of pervasive and it's uh, interfering with what they would normally do, that's the point where the trial needs to be halted. You need to make sure that this wasn't a direct result of what the medication was. Sometimes you backtrack to a, an earlier stage to look for ways that, uh, that this, this uh, medication or vaccine or whatever might be causing these symptoms. So again, it's, it's very meticulous. You may say, well, that's one person. Well, uh, you know, that's, that is the, that's the, the rigor that medications have to go through before they're released to the public. And that's what you want. You want to make sure that you have standardization of how things are going to work so that you can uh, you can uh, represent that to patients. Um, you know, 200 years ago, we didn't have this. And, uh, you know, the whole sort of snake oil conspiracies going around, we really weren't conspiracies. There's a lot of people that were saying this, uh, what's in this bottle, if you drink this once a day, you'll live to be 150, or you'll never have an ache or pain, or this will cure your rheumatism. And none of those materials were put through this rigor, rigorous uh, process to make sure that they actually work or not. Um, and, you know, the claims of individuals, including physicians, that certain things work, uh, really, you can't just take that at face value, unfortunately. There's a lot of people out there that are, that are saying some things work, and it hasn't been put through this same process to ensure safety and to ensure that it's gonna work. So that would be my cautions about a lot of this. And uh, unfortunately, particularly with, you know, social media and all kinds of other things, and in some of the press, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And uh, it is a very complicated and rigorous process for a reason though, because you need that assurance to make sure that what gets through is gonna be good for you. Um, same thing if you were filtering water, if I was going on a hiking trip to the Rockies and I looked at some water and it looked perfectly fine, um, I would, you know, be hesitant to drink that water right from the stream. I would want to put it through a filtration method that really filters out everything that could potentially be harmful for me because it, it on face value, it may look okay. Uh, and somebody may say, sure, I drank that yesterday and had no problem but that doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick with it or that even it's going to be good for you. So you never know what's in that uh, until you put it through that process. Good question. That's Kevin Farrell, our producer, always ready with a good question. Uh, I can see him thinking uh, of good questions from time to time, something brewing in that brain of his. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. 
You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Rhythm on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care problem that you might be having. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to David in Ripley. Good morning, David. Good morning. Uh, I have a coronavirus question. I was sure. exposed I was exposed to someone who tested positive. Um, the same day they tested positive, I started having symptoms uh, fever, uh, chills, coughing, you know, all that. So the next day was when the uh, state-sponsored testing that comes around to the uh, health departments was in Ripley. So I was tested. So during the three days until I got my results back, I had those those common symptoms. Got my results back. It said I had tested uh, negative. So that was about the time that the fever went away. Well, the next day, my smell disappeared. Freshly brewed uh, pot of coffee, you know, wonderful greasy meat frying in a skillet. I don't smell a thing. So the question is, uh, does that sound like there's a possibility that I that I got a false negative test? And if so, you know, how would I how would I find out? I, I uh, would it take an antibody test at this point? And would that be beneficial to me to know that I'm not a danger to, to someone else for the next few months, or that they're not a danger to me? Yeah. So that's a, and that's a that's something that pops up. So this this runs into what we call pre-test probabilities, which is what we do with any kind of test. Um, so every test has the potential for false positives. In other words, if you don't have what you're testing for, but the test result comes back positive or false negatives, which would be you really have what you're testing for, but the test doesn't pick it up and you test negative. And there's many reasons for that. Um, so in your case, having an exposure, which certainly puts you at, at higher risk, and then having those symptoms that are characteristic for COVID, uh, that's a high pretest probability. And um, the test, the particular type of test is important to, to keep in mind, too, because in that case, you would want a test that has the highest rates of accuracy um, and, um, and, and the lowest amount of false positives, the lowest amount of false negatives. But even then, there is a chance that the test may be negative. For patients in the hospital, we recommend the retest if it's negative, but if you really think that's what they have, 
retest. And if it becomes back positive the second time, then that's probably your answer. Um, so you're giving me a lot of symptoms of COVID with an exposure. Um, how long ago from the initial uh, symptoms has it been? How many days? Uh, it's been eight days. It was a week ago yesterday that I started the, the symptoms. It was a week ago today that I was tested. Uh, I got my results on Friday, which was the same day, the last day that I had any fever. Lost a sense of smell on Saturday. And uh, so that's been about, what, three or four days or so. And, right, and right. Uh, this morning I, I, I detected just a little bit of smell of a couple of things that for, yeah. you know, since Saturday I have not been able to smell at all. Yeah. I Honestly, David, I think you did have it. Um, so what is recommended, even if, let's say you tested positive, um, the same recommend, recommendations for testing positive or testing negative with symptoms would be this, what I would say. So that's 10 days um, from the first onset of symptoms, which it sounds like you may have a couple more days, um, where if you can stay away from people during that, you know, two or three more days, that would be the best thing. Um, after that 10 day period, and the fact that you don't have a fever, you have to have a fever for more than 24, uh, at, you have to, your fever can't be present. After your fever stops, you have to have a 24 hour period from that. Um, at that point, there's almost no risk that you're gonna give this to anybody else. You would still test positive probably for the next three months. So if you really, really, really wanted to find out, you could get a positive, you know, another test, probably a PCR test. That's the one that tests for the, the RNA of the, of the virus. Uh, the rapid test sometimes can miss this, particularly if you're not symptomatic anymore. Um, the other way is what you mentioned is an antibody test. And by this point, you should be making enough antibodies to test positive. But again, it's not going to change what happens. Normally, it would be 10 days, try to quarantine yourself away from other people. And then after that point, there's very low risk of you giving this to anybody else. So you're safe to go back to work or to interact with people, um, that kind of thing. The smell, it is, it is good that it's coming back. And some people, that lingers for months. Um, it's sort of variable from patient to patient. But the practical thing would be, just go ahead and stay away from other people for the next two to three days until you reach that 10 day point from the first onset of symptoms. And then you're good to go. Um, I would still have precautions, you know, even though you're not, uh, you know, you, you're not able to, to spread that to somebody else. And probably you're going to be a little bit, have a little bit of immunity to that. Although we've already seen now, the, uh, you know, a few people in the U S now are starting to get it at a second time. Um, so I would still be careful, but as far as a risk of, of giving it to somebody else at this point, it's probably pretty low after that 10-day period. All right. Thank you very much. All right, David. Thanks for calling. We appreciate it. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 A lot of testing of individuals. Um, 
on a more routine basis. If anybody follows professional sports, you know that they're getting tested, uh, some of them daily, particularly before and uh, during games and different uh, activities that they're participating in, NCAA athletes also. A lot of them in the spring, the plans are for, you know, three times a week testing, which uh, that's a lot of testing. If you've had a test, I've had one, uh, which was negative. Uh, it is not a pleasant procedure, uh, particularly if you have the one that, that's uh, the most accurate that, that uh, is a, a nasal pharyngeal swab, which a lot of people say, I don't think that was nasal pharyngeal. I think that felt like a brain biopsy, um, but uh, it is not pleasant. But um, getting that a lot to, is a hassle. So a lot of development uh, in, right now of can we have as accurate tests that uh, are just swabs of uh, saliva from the mouth, which certainly there's a couple of those out there, but again, not as accurate as uh, some of the other ones. So you really have to you know, be careful with some of those tests. The rapid ones, if you're doing a lot of them frequently on the same population, they can be abused, particularly when they're positive. So it's, uh, it's, it's important to sort of know the differences there. Let's go to uh, Michelle in Jackson. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for calling. Hey, good morning, Dr. Jimmy. I got a question. I've been listening to you and talking talking to the last caller about him being um, uh, a threat to other people around him and how he would not normally um, get the virus again if he had it. My question came, a question came up in my head about the flu. If someone gets the, gets the flu and they get over it, get a Tamiflu pack or whatever, and they get over it, can they get the flu again? Yeah. And if so, uh, what's the difference in COVID-19 and, of course, the flu virus where you can't, some people say you can't get the you know, COVID-19 again once you've been infected, but the flu you can yeah, you can get both of them again. And again, that's that's what we're starting to see. We've seen this already in other countries, and we're starting to see it in the U.S., that individuals who develop COVID uh, can get it again. And we know that that's the way coronaviruses work in general. They've been around for decades. Um, they You can be reinfected in the same season um, from them. It, it's, in some cases, it's a lesser infection the second time. But I believe in uh, Nevada, uh, there's a gentleman who has been reinfected and his second infection with COVID has been worse. So it's not a guarantee. So I wouldn't, you know, I know a lot of people and a lot of leaders are saying, hey, once you get it, you're good. That's not entirely true. Um, that you may have some protection, we think, for three or four months. Um, but after that time, your, your uh, antibodies wane and we don't know enough about this virus yet to know the long-term consequences of that if you're able to get it or not. So right now, it looks like, at least for, for some individuals, and there's no way to predict this, that they could get the, envir the virus a second time or more times after that. Influenza is, is similar uh, from the standpoint of once you get it during a season, it doesn't give you total immunity. We've, we've documented... Um, uh, you know, for years, patients who have gotten it more than once in the same season, it again, it tends to be a lesser uh, infection the second time you get it, but that's not always the case. And you could very well develop influenza and COVID at the same time. We saw some of this in the spring, early spring with some of the cases in the U.S. 
And uh, as you could imagine, having both of them at the same time uh, tended to do a little bit worse than if you just had one or the other. So both of these um, don't, and, and that's, this is not, uh, this, is, this is actually similar with other diseases too. We mentioned tetanus earlier on. If you have tetanus and recover from it, um, that doesn't give you enough immunity. You still have to be vaccinated for that to prevent you getting that uh, later on. So there are a lot of things out there that the, the amount of immunity that you get through natural infection is not sufficient enough to protect you should you get that again. And in the case of coronaviruses and influenza, particularly with influenza, it just changes so much from year to year because of how it moves around the world uh, and mutates. That's, that's just sort of the nature of it. Coronaviruses, again, we know that over time they can do similar things and it's, uh, it's hard to mount up that, that immunity. So hopefully that answers your question. There are some similarities there, particularly with immunity and how you get immune, but you, there's no evidence to suggest, I want to be clear about this, no evidence to suggest that once you get coronavirus, that you are somehow protected indefinitely. And there's no way to predict that. So I just want to be clear about that. I don't want people to get uh, a, a false notion that uh, just because you've gotten it, that you're totally cured of it. Cure is not a good term to use because that immunity can wane over time and go down to the point where you could get it again. So you still need to be careful with that. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about all kinds of healthcare issues. The number to call this morning is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you uh, aren't able to call in right now, or if you uh, missed the program and uh, caught it and wanted to uh, give us a question, you can always email us, not just when we're on the air, but also when we're not. Uh, you can send those emails to remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to answer those as quickly as, quickly as we can. And uh, we do share those from time to time as we did earlier on the program because we think that's important information that, uh, that uh, everybody should know. If you tell us not to share it, of course, we won't do that. We'll just respond to you. Uh, but it is helpful. One of the great things that I've enjoyed uh, over the years in hosting Southern Remedy is uh, the opportunities for our listeners to really determine the content. It's the same way that, uh, in fact, I had somebody this morning saying, uh, hey, that must be difficult. It's, you know, it's really like patients walking into the office and saying, hey, I've got this problem or I've got this going on. So uh, it's a great way that we can serve the state and the region in trying to get that information out there and sharing that with other people through your questions 
about your particular healthcare problems certainly is applicable to the entire population in our broadcast area. Most people think, well, I'm the only person that probably thinks this or has this question. I guarantee you there's probably at least 10 other listeners out there that are going to benefit from that. And certainly we want to thank everybody who does call in regularly uh, to, uh, to ask those questions. So again, the number to call is one 877 mpb ring That's one 877 We've got a COVID-related program. That's not too surprising given the current state of things. Uh, you know, there's 36 states now that have uh, increases in COVID numbers so that their numbers, daily numbers of patients uh, that are uh, of people who are testing positive and increased. Uh, certainly some death rates are going up in some states, particularly those states that weren't hit as hard the first time around. The Midwest in particular, uh, that doesn't exclude the South or the Southeast. Um, and a lot of places, again, if rates go up high enough, some of the concerns are that we won't have enough um, uh, hospital beds uh, to uh, take care of those patients appropriately, and in particular, ICU beds. So that's been a dicey situation uh, earlier on in the year, and we're hoping we can uh, do everything we can to sort of uh, to hold off on that. Um, wearing masks, social distancing, not getting together in large numbers. Uh, those are the things that really we know are going to prevent that. And I know everybody's tired of doing that. Um, you get tired of wearing that mask in and out of places. And in a lot of places now, it's not a mandate. It's an option. I challenge all of us to do that. We mentioned, you know, the efforts that went into uh, making uh, this country great in the past, like fighting wars uh, and uh, it, it really, the, the combined efforts of people are really what does that. So we need that kind of attitude, I think, and team mentality in what we're doing. Uh, and, uh, and we can do it. We can certainly go about a large amount of our business and a large amount of our uh, social interactions with people if we follow those guidelines. So it certainly can, uh, can improve things for all of us. Uh, but just keep that in mind with those increases, uh, you know, across... Uh, in Mississippi, I know we're right around the 800 to 900 patients a day uh, of people to, uh, that are uh, testing positive right now. So that's something that you certainly should keep in mind and uh, mask up. Uh, a lot of really cool, uh, particularly the kids that are coming in the office now with masks, really some cool looking masks. They're really neat. I wish a lot more schools, I know they can't uh, have kinds of crazy things on them. I think we ought to my personal view is that we ought to treat masks like ties and just get, let everybody go crazy on designs with them. Uh, that's certainly a, a way that you can make it a little bit more fun. So this is Southern Remedy. Uh, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 we got time to squeeze in one more call if you want to uh, call in with something. Uh, in the meantime, I did have an email about sarcoidosis and what to do about that. So sarcoidosis is a common medical condition here in the South. It is, um, it is a non-caseating granulomatous disease, to use the fancy nomenclature, but it's an autoimmune disease where you can get these uh, uh, symptoms of shortness of breath, uh, which is one of the main ones, but it can also affect other organs in your body. So basically, you have these enlargements of lymph nodes in your lungs. Uh, you can also have similar things in your kidneys and other soft tissue organs and in your skin sometimes. And these are treated in different ways. 
Uh, one of the, the best ways to treat it if you're diagnosed with sarcoid right off the bat is steroids. Although we have other autoimmune treatments that target the immune system to try to get that better. So things like Imuran and other medications can be given. The question was in the email that, um, that is there anyone in particular, particularly a medical professional, that's a specialist with this? And that, the answer to that really depends upon the symptoms. So if it's mainly pulmonary or lung type symptoms, then a lung doctor who's experienced with doing that is probably the best person. If you are put on other immunosuppressive medications that aren't prednisone, a lot of times a rheumatologist is a better person to manage that just because they're more familiar with those autoimmune medications and their clinic is set up to do that because a lot of those are infusions uh, or IVs of uh, those medications. So um, having a clinic like that that has somebody that's that's familiar with it. And if you do have skin problems or kidney problems, you may be seeing two or more physicians for those kinds of things too, a dermatologist for the skin and a, um, a um, uh, kidney doctor, a nephrologist for the kidneys. So it really depends upon those symptoms. It is a treatable condition. It is a chronic condition though. You're probably not gonna be cured from it, but there certainly are patients, particularly with the newer anti, um, uh, or auto anti-autoimmune type therapies uh, that uh, spare you some of the side effects of steroids. Steroids are a great initial treatment for something like that, uh, but they uh, can cause a lot of side effects, particularly increased risk of diabetes, uh, glaucoma and cataracts, uh, weight gain, um, a lot of those uh, long-term symptoms, thinning of the bones, uh, which can cause a lot of problems uh, that uh, it's been nice to have medications now for the last 15 or 20 years that we can move people from those steroids towards those other medications. So uh, if you're if you've been newly diagnosed with sarcoidosis, uh, talk to your physician, see particularly with the symptoms that you have, who is um, who has experience with that, with treating it and uh, sort of go from there. There are some regional centers outside of the state that have uh, sarcoidosis clinics where they have everybody in one clinic uh, that depending upon the, again, those symptoms, you'll have all those specialists there when you go to see them. Uh, but that's not totally necessary. You certainly can do that, uh, see different people for that. I should mention ophthalmologists too. Sometimes you can have uh, ocular sarcoidosis symptoms where you have to see an ophthalmologist. So it's really one of those diseases that affects everything. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org.